Well, good morning, folks. If you're outside, come on in. Take a seat. Welcome along. If you're new and visiting, um, my name is Brendan. I'm part of the pastoral team here at Sovereign Grace. And again, a warm welcome. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. We're continuing on in our series through the book of Philippians. And uh, it's been a fantastic uh, series so far. Uh, we continue on through this series, and one of the beautiful things about preaching expositionally through a, a book of the Bible like this, a letter like this, is that we don't set the topics. We don't decide what we're going to preach on in terms of our passion points, but we try and preach God's Word and trust that the power is in God's Word, God's Word's power to change us. And so this morning we come to uh, quite an unusual passage in Philippians, and so we need to listen to this and try and understand what this word from God has to say to us this morning. I believe it has something powerful to say to us this morning, something vital that God wants to teach us. So, if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read uh, just three verses this morning. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 1 through to 3. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have laboured side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Why don't you join with me in praying. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, your word is a word of power. Lord, it is by your word that you spun the stars in the sky. It's by your word that you formed this earth and everything that is in it. It is by your word that you sovereignly uphold all that is. And so, Lord, help us this morning to tremble before your word. Help us this morning to hear your word. Lord, help us this morning to be changed by your word. Help me this morning, Lord, to preach your word and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start by reading a quote from Paul Tripp. A quote from Paul Tripp that I think explains really neatly what I want to talk about this morning. Paul writes the following. He says, In my early pastoral days we lived in a twin home with our elderly landlady living in the other side of the house. In exchange for reduced rent, 
I agreed to do all of the yard work. In the busyness of ministry and family life, it was sometimes hard to find time to mow, rake or shovel, but I tried to be prompt and faithful. However, no matter how disciplined I tried to be, my work never seemed timely enough for our landlady. To get me to work to her schedule, she would go out shoveling or raking, knowing full well that I would rush out and complete the job. I was unaware of how irritated I had become over her manipulation until one afternoon when I heard the leaves rustling outside. I looked out the window to see my landlady in her house dress and slippers raking the leaves. In my anger, with my hands on my hips, I said out loud, if she thinks I'm going to rush out there and rake for her, she's nuts. I'm going to rake on my time or not at all. What I didn't realise was that one of my sons had been standing beside me. In a split second, to my horror, I saw him in the front yard hands on his hips, yelling at my landlady. My dad says, if you think he's going to rush out here and rake for you, you're nuts. I couldn't believe it. I was mortified. I wanted to back away from my words and rush out to tell my landlady that I had said no such thing. Or at least that my son had misunderstood what I'd said. But I had to face the fact that the words had come out of me. That I had said what I'd meant and that the words were the fruit of anger I had been carrying for quite a while. You know, there's something really uh, endearing about this story. Something in it that I think as you sort of cringe and think, oh no, we can see ourselves in it, can't we? We can see ourselves doing exactly the same thing. It's conflict, isn't it? It's disagreement. It's argument. And even as Christians, we can't escape it, can we? Even as Christians, it affects our lives. Conflict affects our lives. And it affects the life of the church. You know, it's been famously said that the best evidence for the existence of of God is 2,000 years on the continued existence of the church. There's something that's true in that, isn't it? Conflict so affects our lives that it almost seems to be, in fact, it is, biblically speaking, a miracle that the church continues to survive 2,000 years later. Well, the point is this, and the question I want to ask you and I want us to ask ourselves this morning is this. When conflict strikes, how should we react? When conflict hits, what is the right way for us to respond? Well, this morning I've entitled this message A Recipe for Reconciliation. Applying the Heavenly Perspective. I've got three points this morning. The foundation, for those that write notes, the focus and the faithful. Three points, but one message we're going to be hammering, one point we're going to be hammering on this morning, one hope for us this morning, and that is that 
you would see that the key to radical unity is radical humility. A recipe for reconciliation. The key to being radically unified as a local church is to be radically humble as a local church. Well, let's begin. Point one, the foundation. Before I begin uh, getting stuck into our text and the context this morning, I just want to quickly make a note about unity. When we talk about radical unity in terms of the Bible, we're not talking about radical uniformity. We're not talking about being radically exactly the same like some weird sci-fi movie like the Borg from you know, Star Trek. We're not talking about that. In fact, the Bible talks about a unity in the church that exists in the midst of great diversity. Greatly diverse, yet unified together, joined as one. The Bible uses images to express this idea, like like a body, the church is described as. A body with all its different bits and pieces, yet what is more unified than a body? Like a church or a temple, a temple for God himself. A building with all its different pieces, bricks and mortar and roof and tiles and floor, and yet absolutely unified. It's unity in the midst of diversity. Well, let's get stuck into uh, the context of our passage. You see, Paul has been on the attack against false teachers in Philippi. He, he begins his letter in uh, chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, talking about this struggle that Paul's had. I don't know if you remember this struggle with Paul being bound in prison, and yet these people preaching Christ, but they're, they're really out there to spite him and rub salt into his wounds as he lies in prison. Yet Paul is just he's like, he's like, praise God that the gospel is still going forward. He encourages them in verse 28. He says, do not be frightened, guys, in Philippi. Do not be frightened by your opponents. Stand firm. See how verse 29 to 30 of chapter 1 We have the same conflict. The things that I'm suffering here in prison are the same as what you're suffering. In chapter 3, as we move on in Philippians, he goes on to warn them and give this strong, strong warning. He says, watch out. Watch out for those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh, those circumslashes, those evildoers, those who would seek to add to Jesus by telling you that you need to do good things to be right with God. Watch out for those guys. But instead of following them, follow my example and all that seek to follow Jesus like me. Follow me. And so, as Riley encouraged us last week, Paul says, follow me and don't look at earthly things. Don't seek to be like these false teachers who are just all about satisfying their own desires, their stomachs. But set your mind to heaven and the heavenly things. Set your mind to Jesus and his example. Well, Paul moves now to apply this heavenly perspective. He seeks to give us an application for this perspective. A very specific application. You see, our passage, we need to remember, Paul is in prison in Rome. And he's heard from Epaphroditus, his friend, of this division, this conflict 
in the Philippian church. There's been a conflict and the details really aren't given. All we know is that it's a significant dispute. Paul, even though he's in a prison in Rome on the other side of the known world, is aware of this dispute. It's a well-known dispute. You see, in Philippi, the church was founded back in Acts chapter 11 when Paul on his missionary journey came and preached the gospel to a collection of God-fearing women who were meeting beside a river. And one prominent uh, lady, Lydia, became a Christian and, and founded this local church uh, with Paul in, inside her house. The church met inside this lady's home. And so women had had a very prominent role in this church. And we don't know, but we can begin to speculate that perhaps these two ladies that we're introduced to are part of the original planting team. They are nonetheless prominent members of this early church, this local church. But an important thing to remember is that these two people are not false teachers. No, in fact, quite the contrary. Paul is clear to show us that these two ladies are in fact otherwise godly Christians. They're godly Christians. And this dispute has clearly been going on for quite some time. It's been going on for quite some time. What was it about? Well, it's unlikely it was about doctrine, but maybe it was about something like gossip, or maybe slander, or maybe false or poor business practices or the mistreatment of a family member or maybe someone was overlooked for care or maybe there was unmet expectations in a friendship. We are not told. All we're told is these two prominent Christians have had a long-term ongoing dispute. It's significant. It's well known. And so Paul addresses them by name. Why don't you read with me, uh, Philippians 4, verse 2. Let's read that second verse, verse 2 again. Paul says this. He says, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I entreat. Paul is pleading here. This is a pastoral plea. He entreats, he pleads twice. He pleads with them to agree in the Lord. To literally think the same in the Lord. How is this possible? I mean, how can two people who think completely differently think the same? How can they agree? I mean, I wonder if you've ever experienced personally a messy conflict, a long-term conflict, a conflict that has been dragging on for a long time. You know, it's usually not the case that there's just one party offended, is it? Usually both sides have this mix of grievances from both sides, years of offence and it's messy and it's complicated, and there's blaming and blame shifting. I mean, how can this be resolved? I mean, it seems unreconcilable. I mean, how can two people who think completely differently agree? 
Paul encourages them to think the same in the Lord. Where have we heard this before? Well, the answer is in Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being, listen, of the same mind. Literally, thinking the same. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Hear this. Have this mind, literally, think this, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, the, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be used to his advantage, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is encouraging them to think the same. To think the same as Christ. To have the same mind as Christ. Paul, time and time again, is in Philippians, is convinced that the way we think affects the way we live. That what you think, even in your personal life, affects the way you live. How can these two people with irreconcilable differences find unity by being the same mind or having the same mind as Christ Jesus who did not insist on his own way? You see, the Gospel says that we wronged God. That we wronged Him by turning our backs on Him. That we said to God, we want nothing to do with you. You are not a friend to me. You are not a king over my life. I want to live for myself. I want to set the terms of my life. And so, according to the Bible, we wronged God. But God didn't just leave us wronging Him. God didn't just say, fine, you live how you want to live. I'm just going to carry on without you. God didn't do that at all. No, He sent His very own Son. He sent His Son into squalor. He sent His Son to live the life that we couldn't live and to die the death we should have died in our place. He was wronged in our place. He was wronged that we might be made right with God. You see, God did not demand His own way when it came to us. He did not demand that He had His own way. He did not demand that even people see that his way was right. 
or that his opponents pay for their wrongs. God the Son, as he stood accused, was silent before his accusers. For he came to be wronged in our place on that cross. And dying and being raised to life, he offers us the possibility to be made right with him. He didn't force us to see his own way, but he made a way for us, wronged on our behalf. A radical example of humility. You know, this morning you might be here and you don't know Christ. You don't know Jesus. You haven't had Him as your Lord and say you've been living for yourself. I want to plea with you. Don't leave here this morning until you know Him. Don't leave here this morning until you've been made right with Him. We have such a radical example of humility in the example of Jesus on the cross. His radical example is the foundation for reconciliation. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He puts it so well. He says this. He says, the contemporary application of this is so obvious. When two Christians disagree, they must both seek to submit their thinking to the teaching of Scripture. That is the litmus test of our real attitude. This challenge will immediately reveal a disagreement that is due to self-centeredness or pride. Do we insist that our way is the right way, irrespective of what the Lord's way is? It's so true. Sadly, that is often the case. If, as we have seen, the secret of unity is humility, its corollary is that the chief cause of division is pride. That's so true, isn't it? That's so true. We must first submit our thinking to Scripture. We cannot begin to think about other people irrespective of what the Lord's way is. How can two Christians who are divided be reconciled? Paul says, think the same in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. The key to radical unity is radical humility. This is the foundation of reconciliation. To be, to think the same as the Lord. Well, that's point one. Point two, the focus. We need to dig deeper still if we really want to understand how Paul applies the heavenly perspective to reconciling these two Christians in conflict. Secondly, we need to see the way he views the focus of the conflict, and that is these two Christians. Read with me again verse 1. Paul says this. He says, I love this. Therefore, my brothers. This is intimate family. This is not passing acquaintance. This is family. Brothers and sisters, Paul says. He goes on. Whom I love, says Paul. 
whom I love. It's not just colleagues or neighbours. Paul has this deep love for these Christians. He goes on. Whom I long for, says Paul. He longs for them. He has this stirring for them. He longs to be with them. Think back to chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. You know, just the other week I was, I was thinking about this. I was sitting uh, at one of our favourite uh, cafes, Charlotte and I have a favourite cafe, the station in Wurunga, and we were sitting there. Now the corner of my eye, I saw this couple get out and walk about, and I saw, and suddenly my heart rose up inside of me, and I thought, it's Paso, it's Paso, Michael Pasolich, he's, he's he's here. And then suddenly, as I looked out and I saw and I remembered, no, he's moved to the US. It's not Paso. It's like my little heart just broke. In that moment, I thought, oh man, I miss that guy. You know, I miss Paso. And I just, I don't know, have you experienced that before with someone? Just someone you long to be with. You know, you, long, you just enjoy their company so much. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, I long for you guys. I long to be with you. But he goes on. He says this. He says, my joy my joy. We cast back to chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, making my prayers with joy. Paul is just filled with joy every time he thought of these Christians. He goes on, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 4. My crown my crown. I mean, in the previous chapter, he'd been using the analogy of running a race, forgetting what lies behind, running forward, striving towards the goal in Christ. And now he says, you guys, you guys are like the crown, the, the wreath I'm going to receive at the end of this race to see you with Christ, my crown. And as if that's not enough, he goes on, stand firm thus in the Lord. He hasn't said enough. He wants to say it one more time. My beloved. I mean, praise after praise. How can Paul feel this way about the Philippians? I mean, from an earthly perspective, they were under pressure. They were struggling with poverty. And division. Yet Paul has a radical love for them. I mean, how is this possible? I think we see the answer to Paul's thinking right from the start of the letter in chapter 1, verse 7. Paul writes this. He says, after talking of his joy for the Philippians, his love for them, he says this. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, for I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me in grace. Partakers with me of grace. That's the secret. That's the source of his joy when it comes to the Philippians. That is how... He can have such a radical 
love for them. Paul has a heavenly perspective of the Philippians in the Philippian church. He looks on at the Christians in Philippi and he sees people for whom God is at work. A people for whom God is powerfully at work molding them, changing them, radically transforming them and growing them and filling them full of love for him. That's what Paul sees. Read with me verse 3. He says, Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who, hear this, have laboured side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and all the rest. He sees these women as fellow workers who have struggled with him in the gospel. They are in conflict. They are arguing. But they're fellow gospel workers, is what Paul sees. Go on and read with me the rest of that verse. He goes on, he says, with Clement and all the rest, my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Paul looks at them and sees them written in the book of life. You know, Paul uses this, uh, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament by uh, the Apostle John, in fact, in Revelation. The book of life is like an accountant's book with the list of all of the people who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, all the people that have come to know and trust in God, all those who are washed by Jesus And so Paul looks at these ladies and he says, look, all of you have laboured with me and all of you are in the book of life. He looks at these divided Christians and he sees people for whom Christ has died and he's full of love. He sees people who God is working in, people who are precious to him, people who are partakers in grace. And so I want to ask you another question this morning. How do you view other Christians? I'm not talking about those closest to you or those you like the most. I'm talking about all Christians. I'm talking about those that that just really get under your skin. Those that annoy you those that disinterest you? Do you have the heavenly perspective? Do you see grace and God at work? Or do you see where God is at work? Or do you mainly see areas that are lacking? Areas that need to change? I just think Paul's love for other Christians, it, it, it just rebukes me. It just rebukes me and my often lukewarm love for other Christians, love for other people. There's something so inspiring about the way in which Paul loves other people, the way in which he is so passionate in love for other Christians. You see, when you see people from this divine perspective, when you see people the way Paul saw people, it completely changes conflict. 
It brings conflict to be a scandal when you love people, when you see them for who they truly are, a person for whom Christ died. You see, Paul's example challenges us to look at other people with eyes of faith, with a heavenly perspective. We, we must guard against faithless attitudes towards those who are in Christ, mustn't we? You know, if we are more aware of areas of change than areas of grace, we are not seeing clearly. We're not seeing where God is at work. You know, Patrick, the other day, he uh, asked me a question. You know, I've been struggling this year uh, with some, just, just some relational challenges with other people. And Patrick, I'm so looking forward to having Patrick as part of the pastoral team of this church. He and his family are going to bless our church so richly. It is a, such an important and exciting change that's happening this year in this local church. He asked me this really piercing question. His question was this. He said, he said Brent, do you find yourself praying more that God would change people in this area or that, or that he would help you trust him with their life and the work he is already doing? Well, that is a brilliant question. Do I spend more time praying to God saying, yeah, Lord, would you help that person grow in this and that? Or would you help me, Lord, trust you and your work that you're already doing in that person's life? We need to trust God's work in other people's life. You see, Paul was not just like this with the Philippians. No, he was like this with others as well. The Corinthians, they were proud. They were divided. They were sexually immoral. And Paul begins his letter in the first uh, of Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Always. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Even a church that was divided and at each other's throats, who was proud and sexually immoral, Paul says, I always thank my God for you because of grace. Kept working your life. Paul's example, friends, I put to us this morning, takes radical faith and it takes radical humility because we have to trust God when it comes to other people. We must distrust ourselves to see hopelessness in other people's lives or cynicism about whether God is at work. No, we cannot believe that. We we must humble ourselves to acknowledge that we don't see clearly when it comes to other people. We need to ask God to help us to see others with his eyes and to radically love them. Well, how can we apply the heavenly perspective to find reconciliation? We need to see the focus of our reconciliation, other Christians, and we need to see them rightly. We need to see that the key to radical unity is radical humility. We need to see that God is at work in their lives, just like Paul did. And if we can't see it, we need to ask God to adjust our perspective. That's point two, the focus. Point three, the faithful. You see, Paul doesn't only encourage us to think like Christ, 
and to see others rightly, but he also gives us two ways to faithfully navigate conflict as well. Read with me again, verse 3. He says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion. You know, the way this is written in Greek, it's like this emotional appeal that Paul is writing. Yes, I ask you, true companion, literally, He says, true yoke fellow. The idea is uh, oxen with a yoke, two oxen side by side pulling the same load, two people working together, two partners in the gospel, two, a true friend. Those that are truly being faithful in conflict. Paul is addressing a person here who is known to be a true worker. True companion, he says. True fellow labourer, he says. What does he say? He says, help these women. He says, help them. He says, come to their aid. He says, support them. Help them to take on the heavenly perspective. Help them to think the same in the Lord. Help them to see the other person rightly. You know, on one level it seems so obvious, doesn't it, to help someone. Yet when it comes to conflict, we face so many temptations, don't we? I think the first temptation we face is, when it comes to conflict, to gossip. We face the temptation to gossip. You know, we may call it oversharing, or venting, or debriefing, or sharing prayer points. But my question for us is does it pass the three-question rule? I think this is a helpful way to think about it. The three-question rule is, is it true, is it kind, and is it necessary? If it's not true, it's slander, and it's a lie, and we shouldn't be sharing it. If it's not kind, if it doesn't bring a perspective of grace and gracious judgment upon a person's intentions, it lacks grace, it isn't kind, we shouldn't be sharing it. And if it's not necessary, if that person isn't part of helping that person to resolve the conflict, if they're not involved in the care of that person, then we shouldn't be sharing. That person doesn't need to know. It's not true. It's not kind. It's not necessary. If it doesn't meet the three-question rule, friends, it's gossip. But the other aspect of gossip is it's not just talking about other people. It's also listening and allowing someone to gossip to you as well. It's being passive. For when we just listen to gossip, when we don't take a stand and continue to hear gossip, we're affirming someone in sin and we're partaking in the propagation of gossip. That's one temptation in conflict is to gossip. A second temptation in conflict is just to avoid the issue completely. We can be tempted to stick our heads in the sand and pretend like nothing's wrong. To pretend like there is no sin, there is no division, there is nothing wrong. I want to say this profoundly unloving thing to do. I was reading this week Ken Sandy, who I think says it so well. He says this. He says, when a patient has cancer... It is not easy for his doctor to tell him because it is a truth that is painful to hear 
and difficult to bear. Even so, any doctor who diagnoses cancer but fails to report it to the patient would be guilty of malpractice. After all, a patient can be properly treated only after the disease has been identified. Sin works in the same way. Left undiagnosed and untreated, it causes increasing grief and spiritual deterioration. Isn't that true? When it comes to sin and conflict, if we stick our heads in the sand and avoid the issue, we're we're not loving people at all. We're being profoundly unloving. I want to say, those that are faithful, because that's what we're talking about, those that are faithful see others from the heavenly perspective and they humbly pursue love, even at personal cost. Paul calls us to lovingly help people in sin, but not only that, he calls us to something else and so we finish right where we began. Read with me verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. We are to stand firm. Like soldiers in the Roman army, we are to hold on to our position, humbly seeing our place, standing together, being united. Paul in chapter 1 verse 27 puts it like this. He puts it so well. He says this. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Friends, a church that does not stand firm will not be effective as an army for the gospel. We need to humbly see our place as soldiers in the army, parts of the body, bricks in the temple, and stand firm. Alec Motyer says it this way. He says, where there is disharmony, Inside, there is bound to be defeat outside. Where Christians cannot bear the sight of each other, they will not be able to look the world in the face either. Friends, this comes as encouragement to a church that I believe is profoundly unified around the gospel. It comes as a word of encouragement for times where conflict strikes for us. Would we be effective in the gospel We must stand firm. When conflict arises, how should we react? Well, the foundation of reconciliation is to think like our humble king. The focus of reconciliation is fellow Christians. We must humbly see them as the ones for whom Christ died and in whom Christ is working. The faithful in reconciliation lovingly help though it costs and humbly stand firm stand firm in unity. Would we see that the key to radical unity is radical humility? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. 
Lord, it is a powerful word, powerfully able to change. Lord, we thank you that this morning you have addressed us and you have helped us to see that the way in which we can stand firm together is through your humble example, through having the mind of Christ, through being humble. Lord, help us. Lord, it's so difficult to humble ourselves in the face of conflict. But Lord, you are strong, you are working, you are in us, you are good. Lord, for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years strong, until you come back, Lord, may you help this local church to stand firm in one mind, eyes on you and your son. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.